Tonight's topic, we're going to look at angels of revelation. Did God create the devil? And why is there so much pain and suffering and heartache in the world? So we're going to look at that tonight. But before we get started, we want to pray. Is that okay? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day, for life, for health, for strength. And we just ask that your Holy Spirit will be here in our midst, that you will make this topic clear, and you will speak through me, and that we can learn some things, but also that it will impact us in some way as well. In your name we pray, amen. I don't know if you have noticed, but angels are making a comeback. Have you noticed that as you get around the internet and you look in bookstores or in movies, wherever you look, it seems like there's a lot of talk about angels. And sometimes it gets a little confusing. Are these good angels? Are they bad angels? What are we talking about here? There's a lot of books that have come out and they're just constantly coming out so quickly and so fast it's hard to keep up. There's been a series, I think there's a CBS series that was a little while ago, Touched by an Angel, and they had eight seasons of that. And I don't know, there's another, here's a, a film, Angels and Demons. That looks a little bit scary. Don't know that I can recommend that. Then we have a series, I think it's a TV series, Demons in the City of Angels, playing off of people's curiosity. A, another film, City of Angels. This, I don't know if it's a movie or TV series, just called Angel. Looks a little bit dark, doesn't it? Is that the angel that guards you while you sleep? I sure hope it's not the one that guards me. And this is another thing that I, I found called Legion. According to this film, what was it? I had to jot some of these notes down. This says, when a group of strange or dusty roadside diners come under attack by demonic forces, the only chance for survival lies with an archangel named Michael. Where do you think they get all this from? who informs a pregnant waitress that their unborn child is humanity's last hope. Interesting. Maybe. Or maybe it's just out there. And again, we have... I don't like this idea of angels with guns and weapons. So anyway, we're going to move on because that doesn't look so good. But we have angels in Revelation as well. In fact, there's quite a few angels that Revelation speaks of. I always feel like I'm standing in somebody's way. Maybe I'll just come back here. We have angels that reveal God's message. Uh, Revelation 7, we have four angels that are holding back the winds of strife. And I don't know about you, but I feel like those angels are holding back those winds less and less because it seems like there's more strife, more tragedy on the news almost all the time, isn't there? We almost become numb to it, which I don't think that's a good thing, but we can't process. In fact, I've even seen, seen some statistics that by watching the news over and over and over, we can't process all of these things that we're seeing, all the tragedy that we're seeing, and it's coming at us so fast that it really is, can be difficult for us. We have in Revelation chapter 10, a mighty angel encourages God's people to proclaim his last day message. We have in Revelation 14, at the heart of the book of Revelation, it's constructed in a chiastic structure. We may talk more about that a little bit later, but think of it as a pyramid where the center is the most important in the book. And we find that not only in, in Revelation, but in a lot of books of scripture. And so the first and the last kind of mirror a little bit, and then the next to the last and the second, and I'm kind of doing that backwards, but it kind of goes up tier by tier until you get to the top. This is right at the top, and we're going to spend an evening on this. Revelation 14, three angels proclaiming God's last day message. So this is one that's very important for us. And so Revelation reveals an angelic struggle between good and evil. 
And we're going to look at that. We're going to try and pick that apart because I really think that's at the core of a lot of what we're going to talk about. In fact, any book, any movie or film or anything else, you have this back and forth controversy, good versus evil, the good guys versus the bad guys. They used to make it easy on us, and maybe they'd still do this a little bit, but the bad guys always wear what? Black. Black. Is anybody wearing black tonight? We won't single you out. And the good guys always wear? White. White. That's right. Sometimes their horses even match. I don't know. But you see that dichotomy throughout. And that's oftentimes what gives a storyline interest and all the rest and intrigue and here's a problem and how are they going to get out of it. Uh, But we see that very much throughout Scripture. And so if we turn to Revelation, beginning tonight in chapter 12, verse 7, we read, and war broke out in heaven. That's a strange place to have war, isn't it? And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Who's Michael? Jesus Christ. And so we have a a war between Jesus and the dragon. And who's the dragon? Satan. And we'll look more about that, or a little bit more about that uh, as we continue on. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Who didn't prevail? The dragon and his angels. So there was war in heaven between Jesus and the dragon or the devil and some of his angels and they were not able to stay and they were cast out. They didn't have a place in heaven, were cast out of heaven. So verse 9, so the, dra- so the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil, there the dragon is named in case you had doubts, and Satan who deceives how many? The whole world. I'm here to tell you the devil is extremely bright when it comes to deceiving people. That's what he majors in, is to deceive people. That's why one of our questions each night is, how do you suppose the devil is trying to counterfeit? Or what counterfeits can you see? But I think behind every counterfeit's the devil. It's his idea, right? And we're going to talk more and more about this idea of what makes a good counterfeit a little bit later on in this series. But if I tried to hand you a $17 bill, how many of you would take it? How about a $3 bill? You have one? Oh, man, how much is it worth? Six bucks. We'll talk later. A good counterfeit is very close to the original, right? Always close to the original. And so uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself in this series, but if you go up to to Washington, D.C., the people that specialize in counterfeit money, you would think maybe they've studied all the counterfeits and all the ways that they're, that's not what they do. They'll spend a whole week and they'll, they have a seminar where people from banks and all the rest will come up and they'll spend a whole week. And what do they study? Does anybody know? You all have been to the seminar. That's great. They study the original. If you know the original really, really well, you're not going to fall for a counterfeit. I mean, that's not too difficult. Your, your three-year-old or five-year-old understands that when the fish dies, when they're on vacation, you try and replace it with another one with a little patch and everything. That's not my goldfish, right? They know the genuine really, really well. Okay, I got off track. So he deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So it's not just the devil, but the angels. And we'll, we'll get back to that as well. And so here's a picture of maybe this war in heaven or the conclusion. And these angels are being cast out of heaven. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be cast out of heaven. That would be a terrible, awful thing. So the question we're asking is, why was there war in heaven? And where did this dragon 
come from? Are those good questions? Good, I came up with them all by myself. All right, we're going to turn to the book of Ezekiel now for a little bit more insight. We talked last night, for those of you that weren't here, to understand Revelation, the last book, we really have to understand a lot of scripture that sheds light on the last book of scripture, right? And so now we're going to go to Ezekiel to find some answers to these questions. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection. Sounds good, doesn't it? Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This sounds like a great description, doesn't it? Guys, are you writing this down? You can tell us to your wife later. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. But verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. I think there's a picture coming up here, but the anointed cherub... We have uh, in the sanctuary, the Old Testament sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you've seen pictures of that. There's two angels on top, and in the midst of that was the Shekinah glory of God. That was God's presence. And those two angels were this cherubim, and there was one on either side. And so this is saying this individual that was perfect and beautiful and talented and all these things was one of those angels, Maybe on the right hand, I don't know. And so he had close connection with God. He had access, perhaps, like others didn't have access. We like access, right? Behind the scene passes. Oh, I know a friend that works at the White House, and he's going to give me a behind the scenes tour. How'd you do that? Oh, I have access, right? All right, so... You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Again, talking about that axis, how close this person was to God. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Now, this helps shed light on that. There's an element of this that still is hard for us to understand. How does a perfect being go from being perfect to being sinful? How does that happen? How does that start? Well, if we dissect sin a little bit, oftentimes it starts with a thought, and we meditate and we marinate that thought a little bit, and the more we think about it, the more maybe it grows and grows and grows. I don't know. Where did that thought come from to begin with? I don't know. Part of that is one of those great mysteries that we'll have to ask God later, and we just have to put it on the shelf. But we know that this person, and we're talking about the devil, if you haven't figured that out, or Lucifer, as he was known in heaven, was perfect until iniquity was found in him. And so here you have Jesus in heaven. Here you have, I would think, Lucifer is probably right here. And if you're any one of these other angels, you're probably pretty special as well. And then you have angels here and here and on back, and there's probably millions of angels, right? But of all the millions of angels access right here. And I imagine, I don't have text for this, but I imagine, I mean, we have, we're not spending a night on this, but you think of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're all three in one. And we could do a whole topic on that, but we're not going to do that. We don't have time. But if you are maybe on the right hand of God, and if you have access, doesn't it make sense that that person could perhaps be a little bit jealous that they're not part of the Trinity? I mean, why isn't it a quadrity? Why is there only three? And I have another theory. I can't, again, prove this from Scripture fully, 
But my theory is that of, of those three, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I think Lucifer and God the Son were probably the most alike. Why do I think that? Because his charge was with Jesus. It wasn't with God. It wasn't with the Holy Spirit. It was with Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. Who do you get most jealous of? The people that are similar to you or the most different from you? How many of you were jealous yesterday of the underwater basket weaving champion of the world? Raise your hand. That's because none of you are underwater basket weaving champions or almost champions. How many of you get jealous of somebody who's 50 years or 20 years or 30 years older than you or younger than you? You probably don't. The person you get jealous of is the person that's very similar to you, oftentimes, most of the time. And they're the same age. How many of you have gone to a high school reunion or some type of reunion, and it's that person that you were very much alike, but they make a couple million dollars, and, and you're just trying to get by? How's that fair? We went to the same school. We grew up in the same community. We had a lot of the same friends. We went to the same college, and maybe we even majored in the same thing. How did they get so successful, and I'm not? Ooh, am I stepping on any toes yet? So my theory is that Lucifer saw Jesus, and he says, how come he's in that trinity and I'm not? How come he's there? What makes him so special? And why can't I be part of that inner circle? And I imagine it started a lot with doubt and jealousy and wondering. And he started to doubt, is God fair? Is he just? Is he true? Could I do a better job than he could? I think I could. I think he's maybe hiding some things from us. Hmm, I don't know. So you see him maybe mulling over some of these things. Now, if you allow this to kind of grow a little bit, and if you express some of these doubts to somebody, would you believe me if I told you that Obama was crooked, or would you believe his secret service man that follows him all around and carries the football and he told you he was crooked? Who would you believe more? Probably the secret service man who sees him all the time. Why? Access. He know If anybody would know, he would know. And so I imagine Lucifer has a little bit of a, an advantage on every, all the other angels because he can whisper in somebody's ear and say, let me tell you something that you don't know. Well, how do you know? I have what? Access. Access. I can see behind the curtain. I pulled the curtain back. And let me tell you, it's not all it's cracked up to be. Oh, he puts on a pretty good show. But let me tell you what really happens. I mean, I, can, I imagine it could get pretty juicy. Sound a little bit like gossip. I don't know. So again, back to Ezekiel 28, it says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So somehow his beauty, his, his talents turn into pride. And we could talk about pride too. Sometimes when you're doing everything really, really well, the devil says, oh, I'll get him with pride. You're doing that really, really well. Better than the other guy. You should be the one that gets the promotion. Anyway, and so he's mulling over these things. Isaiah 14 sheds light as well. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. For you have said in your heart, and I want you to count all the eyes and see who he's, who he's uh, focused on. I will ascend into heaven. That's one. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's two. I also will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So Lucifer had an eye problem. Me, myself, and I. So Lucifer desired, I believe, a higher position. He wasn't content. I like what Paul says. I know what it's like to have much. I know what it's like to have little. And I've learned the secret. And you remember the secret? 
to be content in all things. And Paul could truly say that because sometimes he had plenty and other times he was beaten and all kinds of things, shipwrecked and you name it. But he learned the secret to be content. But Lucifer wanted a higher position. Two, an exalted throne. Three, rulership and dominance. And I imagine he was going all around saying God can't be trusted. He's not fair. He's not just. He's not true. And I think at the heart of this, if you really distill it down, sin is what? You can read. That's good. Sin is selfishness. Singing about myself. I don't think any of those things would have happened with Lucifer if he would have gotten off of the I, 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 gotten off of the self and would have focused on Christ. We didn't do that. Sin at the core is selfishness. Love at the core, I would submit to you, is selflessness. Isn't it? Selflessness. For God so loved the world that he did what? Gave. That's pretty selfless. You stop and think about what that meant for him to leave heaven and to come here to this earth. For God the Father to give up his son. To watch him go through all what he went through. But God so loved that he gave. Another one, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, this idea, love gives itself less, isn't it? Here's another one, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and did what? Gave himself for her. So over and over in Scripture, and we could put them up there a good portion of this evening, love is giving. Love is selfless. Here's another one. It's a little bit small. This is John 15.12-13. But it says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay down his life for his friends. Is that selfish or selfless? Has anybody here had somebody else give their life so you could live? I mean, that's that's pretty big deal, isn't it? Very big deal. Philippians 2.3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Get off the eye. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You get the idea. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In fact, the ultimate act of selflessness right there. So much so that he didn't even feel. I'm not going to say he didn't feel, I guess. He did feel the nails and the thorns. Those were real. He felt those. But what killed him so quickly? Crucifixion was an act of torture, and so it would go on and on and on and on. And you read the accounts. They're surprised, if not shocked, that on Friday he's already dead. Why? Because the weight of your sin and my sin that was crushing his spirit. If you've ever done something just a little bit guilty, or maybe just a lot guilty, and you feel the weight of that sin, and it's heavy, and it's hard to breathe, and it's hard to not be overwhelmed, it's hard to function. What am I going to do? How am I going to get beyond this, or out of this, or will God forgive me for this? All of that weight times everybody here in this room, times the planet. That's a lot of weight, and it crushed him. It crushed him. Selflessness. 
Love is the answer to the heart's rebellion. And we see over and over and over, even in, in spite of what took place, God responds in love, doesn't he? I mean, he could have simply not created Lucifer at all. Wouldn't that have been an option? And if God can see the end from the beginning, which I believe he, did, he can, then he could have looked down through the ages of time and said, you know, if we create Lucifer, he's going to rebel. And that's going to get really ugly. And that's going to cause a lot of people to suffer. So I have, an, I have a proposal, Father. Let's just not create him. And none of us would have known about it because we weren't part of that council. But he doesn't do that. Why? Because God isn't just good on the outside. He is good through and through. It goes totally against his character. It's dishonest, right? And God's never dishonest. And so he knows the answer to this problem is love. And I imagine as he was going around, as Lucifer was going around, bad-mouthing him to all of his angels, Jesus is there trying to work with Lucifer, trying to woo Lucifer, trying to get Lucifer to change his mind. And I believe if he would have, I believe he would have been reinstated because that's the kind of God that we serve. One verse that we're going to look at here in a little bit talks about how love suffers long. I believe that Jesus suffered long with Lucifer. It wasn't on day one he kicked him out of heaven. I think he suffered with him for a long time and labored with him for a long time until finally enough was enough. It was time to go. And it wasn't just Lucifer, but we're going to find out that it's a third of his angels were cast out of heaven. Talk about ripping out the heart of God, right? And he could have said, okay, if you're going to rebel against me, you're done. Next. Well, I don't think you're done. Next. Anybody else? That's what I thought. That's where they spin the gun and blow it off and put it back in the, right? But he didn't do that. He's, because for love to exist, there has to be freedom of choice. The minute you take away freedom of choice from your spouse, you will love me. And you're not going anywhere. That's not love. That's something very opposite of love. You have to have freedom of choice. And love, true love, that, that doesn't exist out of fear, you know, after he blows up all those, you know, two, three angels with his rifle or whatever it is. Do you love me? <laughs> Would you ever do anything and say anything back in? <laughs> no, that's not love. You have to have freedom of choice. So love is the answer to the heart's rebellion. First John 4, 7, love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God. And then verse 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. If he's going to do away and eradicate this problem of sin once and for all, it has to be clear to everybody that he is fair, he is just, and he is true. And so there's an element of all this that has to play out so everyone can decide in their own mind, beyond a shadow of a doubt, who are we going to trust? Lucifer and the story he makes or Jesus and the story he makes? That's ultimately when you distill it all down, that's what it comes to, Right? And we see that back and forth, that tug of war throughout the book of Revelation. That's it. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Now, the devil likes to tell you he's love. You want to have a good time? I'll show you how to have a good time. First of all, quit going to that church, wasting your time. Let me let you get loosened up a little bit. Try a little of this. Smoke a little of that. Have a little hanky-panky with this girl that just moved in down there. No one's going to know about it. Have fun. I'm the one that really cares for you. I'm the one that's looking out for you. Have you ever heard the illustration, the devil has a thousand blankets? Or maybe it's a hundred blankets. I don't think it's a thousand. It's a hundred blankets. And so you commit a sin after he's coaxed you all along 
to do something and you finally decide, okay. And he says, don't worry, no one's gonna know about it. I'm gonna cover you up with this blanket. Works out pretty well. And he coaxes you again a little bit later. That was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, you enjoyed that? Okay, why don't you do it again? You do it again. No problem, I'll cover you. And he puts another blanket on top. Nobody knows, nobody sees. Shh, this is fun. Might be fun initially, but there's something about sin that it might be fun, but it doesn't last. In fact, it brings you up and then it brings you lower. Can I get a witness? And so he keeps doing that with all of his blankets. Sorry, you had to be my guinea pig here. And he keeps putting the blankets on over and over and over until this habit is well formed in this person's life, in your life and in my life. And then when it gets to the hundredth time, it's just kind of like clockwork. Oh yeah, this is a great time. I can do this. No one will find out or get away with it. And all of a sudden, instead of the blanket, he says, I only have a hundred blankets. I'm going to take these. I'm going to go cover somebody else. And he leaves that person exposed and their life falls apart. Is that love? Is that somebody that has your best interest at heart? Is that what the devil does? I believe that it is. And I believe some of you are shaking your heads because you know exactly what I'm talking about. I think all of us have experienced sin on a level that's unpleasant and it's not fun and it's burned us before. We need something much better than that. And I believe the answer is right here. God is true love, 1 John 4, 8. And love is the foundation of God's government. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. This is a beautiful verse. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. I mean, this is a challenging verse, isn't it? Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity. Doesn't rejoice when other people fall and stumble and are exposed, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, including the sin problem. Love never fails. It's a really hard thing when you're accused of something that is completely false And somebody goes around spreading lies about you all the time, everywhere. And for you to maintain your integrity, even though you are perfectly innocent. And let's suppose you're perfectly innocent, as God is perfectly innocent. And sometimes you just have to wait and wait and wait. And sometimes if you make a big fanfare about things, it almost makes it worse, doesn't it? And you have to wait until the truth is fully known and fully rises to the surface. And by that time, a lot of damage may have been done. But truth has a way of prevailing, doesn't it? It rings true. And when somebody hears the truth, they say, that sounds like truth. And Jesus is patient enough. And he knows that love is the answer and that love never fails. So you have Lucifer on the one hand. And God on the other. Ezekiel 28, 6. You have set your heart as the heart of a God. I need to be there. So the opposite of love being selflessness, we see that sin originated in self-seeking. That's what I believe. There's a Time Magazine article not that long ago. The me, me, me generation. Millennials are lazy. Entitled uh, narcissists who still live with their parents. Hold on a second. I have to take a selfie here. 
I really should do this, and I'll email it to you all. That's just how self-centered I am. I'm not real fast at this, though. Okay, is everybody... Oh, see, I had to turn it around. Is everybody smiling? Cheese! That's a scary picture. The me, me, me generation. We want to tell everybody what we're up to and what we're doing. Did anybody text a picture? This is what I'm having for supper. Oh, look at how fancy this is. This is where I went this afternoon. This is the view up on the parkway. This is this. This is that. Oh, this is the gift that I got. Ho, 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 ho. Anybody ever leave? In fact, tests show that people that spend time on Facebook when they're done, in fact, Facebook is a, a pretty major cause of depression because everybody's life is so much more fun than mine. Everybody's vacation is incredible. It never rains on their vacation. Everything is just picture perfect always. And it's the same with Twitter and Instagram and all the rest. I tend to resonate a little bit with a country song that came out years ago that says, I'm so much cooler online. And the song centers around this guy who still lives with his parents. He lives in the basement. He's overweight. He's really short. All he does is sit in front of his computer and eat Cheetos, but he grabs pictures from everybody else, these hot models driving Ferraris and all these other things, and he puts them up, and all these ladies are just swooning over him online. And that's the whole premise of the, the, the song. I'm so much cooler online. Can you take it? Leave it up to country music to come up with a song about that. But we're obsessed with this stuff. And people are getting depressed over it. In fact, Facebook is one of the number one causes of divorce right now. It's up there. Coming in contact with old friends and my spouse isn't paying any attention to me and now we're chatting a little bit. And it's centered so much in, look at me, look what I'm doing, all the rest. In fact, it started with a place called MySpace. Me, myself, and I. Who's showcased? Me. Whose page is it? Mine. Who are people supposed to look at? Me, 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 me. Interesting. In the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That's a list. Is that describing the world we live in today? Have mercy. And it's that last one that really scares me. Having a form of godliness... Look good on the outside, but denying its power. I tend to think that's the power to overcome sin in my life. And God has all the power, and he's offering me all the power. Yet I say, that's okay, I don't need it. I got it under control. My Facebook page looks pretty good. Oh, I got a microphone there. So Lucifer questioned God's authority. Lucifer questioned God's fairness. Lucifer saw God as a rival, how would God face Lucifer's challenge? Back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So they came to this planet. How did we get involved? We're going to have to go here. How did this planet become involved in this cosmic conflict? Well, you remember the Garden of Eden. Doesn't that look nice? That looks like your front yard, doesn't it? Genesis 2.16, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now I would imagine, and again I can't prove this, I don't think that tree was going to be in the garden forever. 
But God said, or Lucifer probably said, you know, this isn't fair. They can only choose your way. They need to have an option to choose my way. Okay, I'm going to give you this tree for a period of time. And if they want to choose your way, they can. And I'm going to tell them what's what. And so he told them, don't, don't eat that tree. But what happens? You know the story. She meets up with this serpent in the garden. And the serpent says this, you will not surely die. You won't be found out. No one has to know about this. Who told you that? Your pastor told you that? Your parents told you that? Your grandma told you that? Are you kidding me? She's so old school, she told you what? No, 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 no. You won't surely die? That was so last year. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now, forgive me for this, but I don't think the devil's that creative. He uses the same tired line over and over and over, and we're so stupid we fall for it over and over and over. Look at the heart of this whole thing. This was his struggle. He says, if it worked for me and a third of the angels, it's going to work for Eve, and it's going to work for you, and it's going to work for me. Don't you want to be like God? You don't want to submit to anybody. That's so lame. You want to be in control. You want power. You want to be like God, and he's hiding things from you. Don't listen to the Bible. Close that Bible. There's nothing in there for you. I'll be the one to tell you how to get, find power. Oh my, knowing good from evil. So she takes this fruit and she eats of it and instantly things change and sin produces anxiety and fear and suffering and death. And I imagine some here can witness to many of those things, if not all of them. And so Adam and Eve lost Eden because of disobedience, ultimately because they did not trust God fully and completely. And that's why we sin. There's a directive in scripture now, maybe we're just completely naive on scripture, but there are many things that we know are not right and we do them anyway. And at the heart of that is this idea that I know better than God does. Yeah, I've heard something like that, but it, that can't be the case now in this situation. No. And so first, before any sin takes place, we take God off the throne and we just kind of nuzzle in there and we say, oh yeah, this feels better. Ah, I'm in control. That's right. And so we have evil and pain and suffering starvation, terrorism, acts of violence, beheadings, San Bernardino. I mean, where does this all come from? Really? Kids that are sick and dying and suffering from things that they never asked for, they never brought upon themselves, but sin has a way of just continually perpetuating and if not even growing and snowballing. Death and heartache and pain, none of which were part of God's design at all, but he has to let sin play out. What's crazy to me is how long sin has played out and how many people are still buying the lie. Life is so much more fun and fulfilling if you do it however you want to. Live and let live, right? You're the commander of your fate. Follow your heart. No, your heart is deceitfully wicked upon measure. Who can know it? I can't follow my heart. Why? Because my heart is selfish. Me, myself, and I. What do I want? And we've all been to way too many funerals. And who's responsible? We have a parable here. Matthew 13, 27. Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? Anybody ever wonder that? Have the hardest time growing what you want to, but those weeds, you don't have any problems growing those. People joke about that. Yeah, yeah I have a real green thumb. I can grow weeds really well. He said to them, an enemy has done this. Lucifer is the enemy. And he is the one that has sown these seeds of pain and suffering and heartache. We go to the book of Revelation, and Revelation reveals love's response. So here we are in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. 
Jesus is going to be, is willing and has already paid the price for your sin and for my sin. And he doesn't want to just forgive us of our sin. He wants to save us from our sin, not in our sin. How many of us have kids? And if our kids are, I don't know, I'm making this up on the fly, but maybe they're in an ant pile. I grew up in California and I remember getting in some fire ant piles. And what if when I was in the middle of that and I'm screaming my head off and I'm not sure what's going on, I just sat down in the middle of it to enjoy my popsicle and ah! and dad yells out from the back, doesn't even come out the back. He just yells through the screen. Don't worry, it won't kill you, son. Jesus doesn't want to just forgive us of our sin. He wants to free us from our sin. He wants to pull us out of the ants. So we don't have to keep getting stung all the time, right? Revelation 12, verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Testimonies are so powerful. Why? Because it's your testimony. You can't argue with it. What's God done for you? And you share your testimony. And someone can't say, uh-uh, it didn't happen that way. What are you talking about? This, this, that's my testimony. It's like trying to argue with somebody else's opinion. You can, you're welcome to your opinion, but a testimony is powerful. What God has done for you. People can argue in various churches about this theology and that theology, but it's really hard to argue with what God has done for you. I don't know about you, but when I came to the Lord, I got a peace I'd never had before. I had a hope I never had before. I had a purpose for living that I didn't have before. I had a joy. I had an assurance. And the list goes on and on and on. And don't you want to go? No. I've been there, done that, and I don't want to go back. I know how it makes me feel. I know how it makes me act. I don't want to harbor any of those results. Testimonies are powerful. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ, and by the word of their testimony. So here you have the dragon, and here you have the opposite. And we overcome this terrible dragon by focusing on the life, the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ. But not just that, but this glorious resurrection. He overcame for you and for me. And some people say, well, well, that's it. We're done. He conquered it all at the cross. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And yes, a huge thing was accomplished at the cross. But now this great controversy between God and Satan is waged for you and for me because we still have the power of choice. It's kind of like a hot summer day and you're up on the parkway and you get bit by a rattlesnake. And it gets you really good. Goes right into one of your veins. And one of your best buddies is right there and he says, Don't worry about it, Dave. I have the antivenom right here. Let me give it to you. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Death of Jesus Christ, the antivenom. And I put it in my pocket right here and I keep hiking. He says, What are you doing? I'm walking. Well, don't you want to take the antivenom? I have it in your pocket. Don't you want to take it? I've never taken it. Don't, don't you swallow it or something? I don't know. I'm assuming you swallow it. What do you do? You're shaking your head. You put it on the moon? I don't know. How many have been bit by rattlesnakes? You inject it? Okay, so I have this thing to inject it in my pocket too. And he says, you have to apply it to yourself, buddy. What's the matter with you? It's already gotten up to your head. You're not thinking properly. But a lot of people view the cross that way. Jesus died. That was incredible. Act of selflessness. He paved the way for us, but I can still reject it. I have to apply that to my life. I have to accept it. I'm not earning it. I'm accepting it. I'm not trying to earn this vial in my pocket by injecting it or swallowing it or whatever I have to do. I'm simply applying it. I'm saying yes to it more fully and completely than just putting it in my pocket. So the devil wants to trip us up, but the devil's not going to have his way forever. At some point, God's going to step in. In fact, it tells us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Devil will have his end. He's not going to be around forever and for always. But before that takes place, it has, everyone has to be convinced in their own mind of who to choose and who to serve so that nobody has any doubts. Ezekiel 28 verse 18 confirms this. Therefore, 
I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth. Again, he'll be destroyed. You have become a whore, and it shall be no more forever. And I believe sin won't rise up the second time. Do you know why? I believe it's because of how God deals with it. Again, if he pulled out his revolver, maybe he'll call it the judge, I don't know, and he shoots him down and he says, who else next? And everybody's in fear. Then who's to say sin won't rise up the second time or third or fourth or fifth because now I have real doubts. What about you? But when I see how God handles sin, when I see the God of the universe not sending somebody but being that somebody and dying in my place on the cross, the ultimate act of selflessness for me It's pretty hard for me ever to convince anybody anywhere in the universe that God is not fair and just and true and he's really looking out for number one. Who am I going to be able to convince of that? I mean, it's like the friend that says, why don't you put your hand on this this stove right here? You know, it's one of those old school round, you know, and you're like, oh, why? Well, it's just kind of fun. Try it. Okay. (laughs) And you know, for the rest of this seminar, I have this ring on my hand. I have to hide it in my pocket or something because I'm so embarrassed. And somebody else comes along later and says, hey, why don't you put your hand on that stove? And I show you this big circular scar on my hand and I say, are you kidding me? You must think I'm really, really dumb. It's the same thing with sin. The way God is allowing it to play out, nobody will ever say God isn't fair, he's not just, and he's not true. And I believe sin will never rise up the second time. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. We serve a God who has walked in the shoes that we have walked in. And sometimes we think, oh, well, he didn't have this temptation and that temptation. I promise you, he had far worse and more difficult temptations than you and I will ever meet. I promise you, every evil angel and the devil himself was out to stumble and trip up Jesus. But he overcame through the Father. But we have somebody who can relate with us and can sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. And he wants to bring us to a place where we can overcome sin in our lives. And it's not by my own working or striving. There's a work for us to do, but it's all in in the power of God. Oh, that sounds like works and legalism. It's not works and legalism. I'm not talking about earning your salvation. That we just accept. We just drink it or inject it or whatever and it's done. But if somebody has done that for me, you better believe I'm going to respond with trying to obey because I trust that person. With everything I have, I trust that person. And so now this great controversy is being played out. And we're going to continue to study that as we go through the book of Revelation, how this great controversy is not going to just be played out in the lives of you and I, but on this planet as it's going to continue to crescendo and heighten more and more and more and more. And as the pressure gets dialed up, people are going to have to choose whose side are you going to be on. I like to think the fact that you're here and you're interested in the Bible and prophecy tips the fact that you're interested in God and following the Bible's directives for you and your life. And I praise the Lord for that. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we don't have to leave here feeling discouraged or down or anything else. We can leave here praising the Lord that he has died for our sins. He's forgiven us our sins when we ask him. And he gives us not only pardon, but power to overcome the sin in our life. So I don't have to keep living with that filthy monkey on my back. That's good news. That's true freedom. And that's true peace and hope and assurance and all those wonderful things. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. 
And so this was a little bit of an introduction. We're going to continue to talk about this great controversy a little bit more uh, as we go through the book of Revelation. But just a few promises here. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Who's going to strengthen you? God. He says, I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I, 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 my. And there's an I on the, the last slide. If there's any doubt on anybody's mind of who's going to do this, it's God that's going to do it. But it's a promise that we can claim anytime we want to. We can say, God, you told me not to fear because you're with me, that I should not be worried or stressed or dismayed because you are my God and that you will strengthen me and yes, you will help me and you will uphold me with your righteous right hand. I like to think that the ought to put right hand because most people are right handed and that's their strongest arm. God says, I'm going to uphold you with my strongest arm. God's strong. Is he powerful? Oh, he doesn't know about your sin. He probably couldn't help you. Are you kidding me? He could help you overcome anything and everything if you'll surrender it to him. So that's my talk this evening. And that's my call to you and I to just be aware. And sometimes when junk happens in our life, when junk happens this week, sometimes, I don't know about you, but it helps me to think the devil's a jerk. The devil's a jerk. Sometimes we blame God. In fact, your insurance claim might say, oh, this is an act of God. No, it's an act of the devil. He's a jerk. And sometimes, maybe it's just my own stubbornness, but when the devil's a jerk, it makes me all the more stubborn. I'm not going to fall for your mess because you're a jerk. And I know you caused this. And I'm going to claim the power of Jesus Christ. The devil doesn't like that. In fact, I've heard people say that when they're tempted, start praying for all your friends. Don't pray for the temptation because that puts your mind where? On the temptation. So start praying for your friends. Make a list. Keep it in your back pocket. And every time temptation strikes, pull it out and pray for all your friends. Well, I'm still tempted. Well, then keep praying. Your prayer life may go up a bunch, but the devil's going to learn real quick. Yeah, don't tempt that guy because every time we tempt him, he goes and prays for everybody else and starts sending these bombs into everything we're trying to do. Leave him alone. But I believe God wants us to be aware of this great controversy and to know that there is power for us to be free in Jesus Christ, to be forgiven, to be restored, to be renewed, and one day to live with him for eternity without sin at all. Dear Heavenly Father, it's true. You are just the same today. Your power and your might have not diminished at all. And through the life that you lived, through how you've handled this problem of sin and Lucifer and this great controversy gives us more confidence than ever that you are fair, that you're just, that you're true, that you love us and that you have our best interests at heart. Lord, I pray whatever it is that is standing in the way, whatever in whatever way that we are giving in to the devil and his temptations, I pray that you will not only forgive us of our sins, but cleanse us from all unrighteousness and empower us to live for you today. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.